The Cobain 50. Nirvana. Kurt Cobain's Top 50 Albums. Nirvana. From listener-powered KEXP. From somewhere in the shadow of the Space Needle, this is the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP. I'm Martin Douglas. And I'm Dusty Henry. And this week, we're diving into the album Combat Rock by The Clash, which dropped in 1982. As you might know, we are obligated by our employers to celebrate International Clash Day every year. Merry uh, Clash Day to you. Yeah. Martin. What did you get me? I got you four copies of Sandinista. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I had four less than that before this conversation. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to, you know, give it totally all away, but um, I think it's cool to see that Kurt had the Clash on this list and you know, we were excited for Clash Day. But Kurt's take on the Clash, given that it's on this list, might be surprising to some. Just as a note for this episode, it does deal with themes of sexual assault. So if that is a trigger for you, you might want to skip past certain parts of this episode or skip to the next episode, however you feel is the correct way for you to respond. With that said, here's The Clash Combat Rock. The Clash, a seminal and iconic punk band. They redefined punk as a genre and pushed the envelope with how they blended their politics and music. They've been called repeatedly the only band that matters. And according to another punk legend, Kurt Cobain, they also kind of sucked. Yes, you heard that right. In a 1992 interview with Melody Maker, Kurt said that the Sex Pistols were, quote, a million times more important than The Clash. He added, how do I explain that? Hmm, both were the original punk bands, but The Clash were always a bad imitation of the Rolling Stones, in love with America. But at least they took their girlfriends on tour with them. He's referring to the slits when he says, girlfriends. He continues, Their music was terrible, though. I blame Sandinista for not letting me get into punk, years after I should have. It was so bad. Kurt was a champion of the artists he loved. It's pretty much the premise of this whole podcast. So why are we talking about a band he seemed to dislike? There must have been something he liked about them. After all, The Clash's fifth album, Combat Rock, made his top 50 albums list. Darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? Every year on February 7th, KEXP celebrates a holiday we made up called International Clash Day. What started as a day to celebrate the Clash has evolved into an exaltation of the values they professed. This year's theme is Don't Stop, Give It All You Got, a refrain from the opening track to the Clash's album, Sandinista, titled The Magnificent Seven. It was also quite possibly the first Clash song Kurt ever heard. In a 1993 interview with The Observer, Kurt talks about being a young kid trying to find out more about punk in his small town of Aberdeen, Washington. He found a copy of The Clash of Sandinista at the library. His initial impressions? Quote, I hated it. 
I thought, if this is what punk rock is, then I don't want anything to do with it. It's too bad, because I wanted to hear punk rock forever. It's a funny image to think of a young Cobain looking forward to hearing life-changing punk riffs, and instead being greeted to Joe Strummer, white guy rapping about cheeseburgers and Karl Marx. At this point, you might be thinking, isn't this supposed to be a celebration of the Clash? Why are you ragging on them? And you might be right. Maybe I just need to get into the International Clash Day holiday spirit. The Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. Let's be honest. A big aspect of punk music, in all of its forms and eras, is shit-talking. Shit-talking the government. Shit-talking fascists. Talking the music industry. Don't we all know? Parasitic music industry. As it destroys itself, we'll show them how it's supposed to be. Shit talking other bands. And most certainly, Shit talking themselves. I'm so ugly, that's okay, so are you. When you live in a world full of bullshit, you need to talk your shit. The Clash certainly understood this. The Clash emerged from the ashes of a few different bands, namely Joe Strummer's The 101ers and Mick Jones's London SS. Both bands were running their course in London's pub rock scene. Without even knowing each other, Strummer and Jones were becoming disenchanted with the music they were making. When they saw the Sex Pistols starting to play around London, they saw the writing on the wall and felt the call to punk rock. The 101ers and London SS separately broke up in 1976. Mick Jones retained his band's manager, Bernard Rhodes, who began helping Jones recruit members for a new punk project that was meant to rival the Sex Pistols. They locked in Strummer on vocals, Jones on guitar, Paul Simonon on bass, and Topper Heaton on drums. Originally, they dubbed themselves Weak Heart Drops and the Psychotic Negatives. But as Paul Simonon was reading the newspaper, 
he kept noticing this one word reoccurring in articles. Clash. So, he suggested they change the name. And thank God, because International Weak Heart Drops and the Psychotic Negatives Day just doesn't have the same ring to it. The newly dubbed Clash quickly got to work playing shows. Within a month of rehearsing, they played their first gig opening for, you guessed it, the Sex Pistols. After the show, the Clash and Pistols made their way to another gig in town, catching New York punks, the Ramones. That same night, Simonin got into a fight with the bassist for the Stranglers, who opened for the Ramones that night. The Clash, Sex Pistols, and Ramones were supposedly holding back the two bassists from one another. It was basically as punk as it gets. Within a year, the Clash would drop their landmark self-titled debut. Their first single, White Riot, set the stage for the Clash's reputation for taking strong political stances. The song was inspired by Strummer and Simonin's involvement in the 1976 Notting Hill Carnival riots. The Notting Hill Carnival is a yearly Caribbean carnival in London, a huge event that celebrates the culture and heritage of British Caribbeans. But this particular year, there was a heavy police presence prompted by, quote-unquote, allegations that petty crimes would be afoot. It was already a widespread problem that police were targeting young black men in the United Kingdom, So, when police began arresting people at the festival, tensions mounted until it erupted into a full-blown riot. Strummer says white riot was meant to be a call to arms for white people to stand up against oppressive forces in the same way that he and Simonin saw their black countrymen do. Look, there's a lot of Clash history to cover, and we can't get to all of it here. They put out a few notable albums you might have heard of, like Give Them Enough Rope, and a little record called London Calling. Throughout it all, over their 10-year career, The Clash's message got bolder and more pointed. Their musical influences continued to expand as well. Loud, distorted guitars weren't enough. More and more, they began to incorporate dub and reggae into their sound inspired by the music brought over to London from Jamaican immigrants, who forged their own underground scene. This all culminated in the 1982 album, Combat Rock. The dawn of the 80s brought on new political leaders and more problems. A new wave of conservatism was rising across the globe. The Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, was now the British Prime Minister. In the United States, actor-turned-politician Ronald Reagan became president and promised his trickle-down economics would reinvigorate the country. Spoiler alert, it did not. But Thatcher and Reagan became clear and easy targets for punk bands, representing everything punk wasn't. To kick off this new era in the world, and their album, the Clash got straight to the point with the opening track to Combat Rock, Know Your Rights. This is a public service announcement. 
with guitar. Sturmer outlines the basic rights we should all have as human beings: the right to not be killed, the right to food and money, and the right to freedom of speech. On the last point, he adds, "As long as you're not dumb enough to actually try it." Combat Rock spends a lot of time looking back at recent atrocities that the world was still reckoning with, but not really talking about, at least in the West. Namely, the Vietnam War. The class were fixated on the war and drawing attention to the damage left behind. Supposedly, the band had also become obsessed with Francis Ford Coppola's classic film *Apocalypse Now*, which became a huge influence on their recording. This inspiration led to one of the Clash's finest moments, with a haunting, melancholic song, "Straight to Hell." The song finds the Clash sounding sober and subdued. Strummer's vocals are strained as he sings in the first verse about the shuttering of mills in Northern England and the Asian immigrants living in the area forced to deal with the repercussions, including the racist taunts that they endured. Strummer mimics this racist archetype as he says, "There ain't no need for you. Go straight to hell, boys." Go straight to hell, boys. Go straight to hell, boys. Then in the second verse, he turns his attention directly back to Vietnam. Particularly, he calls out the American soldiers who impregnated women in Vietnam and left their kids behind. When it's Christmas out in Ho Chi Minh City, kitty say, Papa, 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 Papa Sam, take me home. See me got photo, photo, photograph of you. Strummer and the band hold a mirror to the atrocities that the West tried to look away from. Whether it's displaced Vietnamese citizens trying to rebuild their lives after the war, or Puerto Ricans in New York being pushed out of their neighborhoods with literal Molotov cocktails, the song's enduring message has carried on for generations. It reached a whole new audience when M.I.A. sampled it more than two decades later on her defiant smash hit, Paper Planes. Like The Clash, M.I.A. was born in London, but she spent her childhood in Sri Lanka, witnessing the brutal Sri Lankan civil war firsthand. This experience colored her worldview and informs the art she's still making today. Also, very much like the Clash, her single "Paper Planes" reflects on the immigrant experiences while living in New York. In a 2007 interview with the Fader, she talked about living in the Bed-Stuy neighborhood in Brooklyn. Reflecting on her experience, she said, "Quote: People don't really feel like immigrants or refugees contribute to culture in any way. They're they're just leeches that suck from whatever." So in the song, I say, all of this speaks so much to the Clash's ideology of music as a tool for resistance. Of course, you feel this in one of their most iconic singles, the dance-heavy "Rock the Casbah." <laughs> 
The fun, jovial vibe of the song contrasts the fable of a Middle Eastern king putting a ban on Western rock music. The people rise up in protest, pissing off the king, who then orders the protesters to be bombed by jet fighters. But instead of bombs, the jets blast rock music in solidarity. It's one of the more idealist Clash songs, hopeful that music could spark change in the face of tyranny. It's difficult to call Combat Rock the Clash's most political record, given how political all of their records were. When you dig in a bit more, though, it's easier to see what resonates most with Cobain and Nirvana. Nirvana might not be considered a quote-unquote political band in the same way The Clash were, but Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl held firmly to their punk ethics. They didn't mince their words either. Inside the disc for their B-Sides and Rarities compilation, Incesticide, Kurt included this statement in the liner notes. Quote, If you're a sexist, racist, homophobe, or basically an asshole, don't buy this CD. I don't care if you like me, I hate you. While they weren't often putting foreign policy in their crosshairs, Nirvana frequently tackled issues of misogyny and sexism. The band came up in Olympia's music scene alongside the Riot Girl movement, including bands like Bikini Kill, Bratmobile, and L7. Nirvana embraced their feminist ideology and spread it to mainstream audiences. Kurt, Chris, and Dave loved to wear dresses in photo shoots and press engagements. Kurt in particular loved to wear dresses and gowns, saying dresses felt comfortable, sexy, and free. This was a stark contrast to the macho behavior of the 80s rock and metal that preceded Nirvana. One of the best examples we have is the Nevermind standout track, Territorial Pissings. The song also opens with bassist Chris Novoselic mocking the Young Bloods' 1967 single, Get Together. Come on, keep them out. Smile on your brother, everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. Come on, people now. Smile on your brother, everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. Presenting an idealist vision of peace and love, before devolving into a barrage of power chord havoc. The song's title alone is a direct attack against misogyny and the patriarchy. This very idea of pissing on something to make it yours speaks to this idea of toxic masculinity. Kurt takes the piss out of the patriarchy, pun intended, even more when he sings... Never met a wise man. If so, it's a woman. woman. 
Nirvana found new ways to make people uncomfortable. Kurt penned two songs specifically speaking against rape. The first being Polly from Nevermind. Polly wants a cracker. Think I should get off her first. Think she wants some water. To put out the blowtorch. Isn't me? The song refers to an actual incident that involved a 14-year-old girl who was raped leaving a punk house in Tacoma, Washington. Kurt sings from the perspective of the perpetrator, emphasizing his disgust with the assault. The other notable song against rape is, of course, Rape Me. Rape me Rape me Unlike Polly, this song was written from the perspective of the victim. Despite some confusion from the public, Kurt held firm that Rape Me is a decidedly anti-rape song. As he told Rolling Stone's David Frick in 1993, quote, I'm a firm believer in karma, and that motherfucker is going to get what he deserves eventually. Here's Kurt again talking about the song on MTV in 1993. Could you explain the meaning of the song to perhaps clear up? Hmm. I think they... Well, we're the cover boys of about 10 different magazines this month. And in every one of those magazines, we explain it pretty, pretty good. It's a anti, let me repeat that, anti-rape song. Um, I don't know, I just thought, I got tired of people thinking, trying to put too much meaning into my lyrics, you know. It's being too, uh, not making enough sense, you know. So I decided uh, to be really blunt and bold. The band made sure the song got out there. They performed it on Saturday Night Live, and they wanted to play it at the MTV Video Music Awards in 1992, but the network was horrified at the idea and urged the band not to do it. Still, Kurt, in a true act of punk defiance, teased the song at the beginning of their performance before jumping into lithium. In Michael Azarod's Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, he notes the frequent topic of rape in Nirvana's music. Kurt responds that he feels like he's apologizing for the entire male gender. He adds, quote, I don't feel bad about being a man at all. There are all kinds of men that are on the side of the woman and support them and help influence other men. In fact, a man using himself as an example towards other men can probably make more impact than a woman can. Certainly, it's up to the listener to decide if Kurt's message was properly delivered. But the idea is this. A band the size of the Beatles, a band that dethroned Michael Jackson from the top of the Billboard charts, would use their massive platform to speak so loudly on women's issues. That was a radical act. Just like how The Clash weren't going to let the 80s go by without addressing the sins of the past, Nirvana brought the 90s a reckoning of their present behaviors. Let me take you back to Sao Paulo, Brazil, 1993. Nirvana played a historic show full of all the punk, reckless abandon you could hope for. Flea, yes, the very same Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, played trumpet on Smells Like Teen Spirit.
and they ran through an array of haphazard covers from Queen and Led Zeppelin, and namely, The Clash. Kurt and Dave switched places, so you're hearing Kurt singing while playing drums. So, yes, you've heard the quotes of Kurt talking about how much he thought The Clash were kind of lame, but this Clash cover is one of the few pieces of hard evidence we have that he, in fact, did like them on some level. Should I Stay or Should I Go is one of The Clash's biggest songs, and also one of their most fun and frivolous songs. But it asks a poignant question. Keep it in mind for a second. We are constantly bombarded with bad news. New atrocities and man-made horrors every single day. Innocent people being killed and displaced from their own land. Wars upon wars upon wars. Misogyny rearing its ugly head all across the world, despite the visibility and accountability afforded to us by social media. World leaders are even elected who brag about committing sexual assault on tape. It is a lot to take in constantly. When you're overloaded with information, it's easy to become paralyzed and complacent. Righteous rage turns into sinking into the couch, watching Netflix to numb the chaos of the day. That's where The Clash and Nirvana come in. Both bands exemplify what it means to take stock of the world and at least try to do your part. Neither of these bands actually solved the issues they so fervently sing about. But speaking out about it makes sure others don't forget. Speaking up is an underrated first step. Let's ask ourselves this. Should I stay complacent? Or should I go do something about it? You got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? You just heard Dusty Henry's story on The Clash's Combat Rock for International Clash Day here at KEXP. I feel as though I... Like one of the things everybody knows about the clash is their involvement in social justice. And I think you nailed that pretty well, but I got to admit that some of my favorite parts are talking about how Kurt was kind of let down listening to Sandinista for the first time. I remember reading that in Michael Azarad's essential Nirvana biography, Come As You Are, about him listening to Sandinista and being like, well, what, what, what is this? This right. isn't <laughs> punk rock. <laughs> so that was, I thought that was a really cool um, part to put in. And, you know, all the stuff about shit talking, I can deeply relate to as a human. <laughs> yeah. And I think like that was the key. The story was tough because I think when I, you know, was looking it up, the first thing came up was Kurt saying he thought the class sucked. And that was like, okay, well, where do you go from there? And yeah, the Sandinista stuff was funny. I think that's maybe a, the most like reviled of the clash albums. And I've been there before you pick, you're like, Oh, I, I got to get into this band and you pick up the wrong record and it just taints your experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's nothing worse than hearing about this band that everybody loves or a lot of people love that are critically acclaimed that are, 
innovative and you pick up what is largely known as their worst record and you're like, this is the band everybody's talking about? (laughs) That happened with me with Animal Collective. And maybe this is a hot take, but someone gave me the Strawberry Jam record and I'd never heard of that band and I was Mm. in high school and I was just like, what the hell is this? This is, I don't understand. Is this music? Like, and I just totally like turned me off the band for like a decade. A quick aside on Animal Collective. I feel as though the only great record they have is Sung Tongs, but you know, that's a, that's another conversation for another time. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, one thing is, well, let's just address the elephant in the room. I've been at KXP for about seven years. We've been here about six years, Mm -hmm. maybe our sixth and seventh clash days respectively. Yeah. It's been a little hard to think about new ways to approach the clash for me at this point. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you felt that way. I don't want to put that on you, but it's it was almost refreshing to get Kurt's take on that. Just kind of feeling the same way of like, I liked a lot of the clash London calling as a record I really loved and certainly some of the songs on this record. But I was like, where do you go from here? We've, I feel like we've approached it from every angle at KEXP. Um, it's a little bit of fatigue, I guess. So a little personal context for me is that I've always thought The Clash was an okay band. Um, you know, they're all right. They're pretty good. They've got three or four great songs and they're all on London Calling. You know, <laughs> like that was kind of my baseline for The Clash. And then for a band that I admittedly don't love, it's... You know, it's been kind of a struggle from the start to, like, really find the things that I like and appreciate about The Clash. And so this episode about Kurt not liking The Clash, I felt seen. I got to (laughs) admit, I felt seen. And, you know, no diss to my employer. Shout out to all of the decision makers at KEXP. I will celebrate Clash Day as long as it takes, as long as y'all keep writing those checks. International cash day, as we say, <laughs> when the paychecks come. But I, I, I'm with you. And again, it's not disrespect to the clash. And I think one thing I have appreciated, like spending so much time learning about the band, is their stance and the way they use their platform, their quote unquote celebrity and access to uplift these different social causes is really admirable that you could take away the band and that legacy, I think is something worth standing on. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I feel like Joe Strummer was a really cool dude. I mean, we might as well talk about it. We live in a day and age where having a good grounding in social justice is the standard to the point where people kind of perform it a little bit. And so Joe Strummer seems like the kind of dude who always stood on his principles. And I really appreciate that. Joe Strummer seems like one of the few punks of this time and, you know, probably even dating to today that actually has black friends. Like I would I would love to hang out with Joe Strummer. That would have been really cool to me. R.I.P. Joe Strummer. I feel like he's a cool dude in that context and like really gets down with black culture. You know, you can see in his forays into reggae music, into ska, that this is something that he really appreciated. Whether or not you enjoy 
his takes on reggae or like his rapping. Right. <laughs> his rap. Let's not talk about his rapping, but like if you appreciate his explorations in black music, you can tell it's genuine and you can't say that for an overwhelming amount of white artists. Yeah, I mean, even the Clash taking, you know, Grandmaster Flash on the opening slots on their tour and things, they were like really like invested in hip hop as it was like kind of setting the same time the band was. And, you know, like we said, shit talking is a huge part of punk. And I think it's, you know, maybe underplayed. Kurt was so ambivalent to giving big, nice platitudes. He was going to speak how he wanted to. He was going to call out the stuff he didn't like and speak truth to the things he did like, such as this list. But I think that is a connection to him and like Joe Strummer of The Clash that I see pretty prevalent in both their careers. Yeah, absolutely. More importantly than the fact that Kurt didn't like The Clash is that Kurt didn't like racism and homophobia and sexism. And that is something that ties these two records together. Totally. And I was also thinking a bit about how, you know, Nirvana and The Clash were both on major labels at the time, you know, so they did stand something to lose in a, in a way in, a, in the business sense of things, but they use that, this access to people yeah. to, to, to really share what they thought. And at a time when it, in both these times, it was not cool to talk about these things or like, especially as a all dude band talking about feminism or writing anti-rape songs Wearing dresses on MTV, that stuff was not... It's much more common today to see Harry Styles or someone going on Vogue in a dress. At the time, it was so... That was such a radical act to do. Absolutely. It was um, shocking to some people, I think. I mean, I was a kid living in North Carolina with a very church-going family. (laughs) And there are times where I had to sneak downstairs to, you know, watch a Nirvana performance because the idea of watching a rock performance anyway would have gotten me in trouble. But like, imagine if my uncle or whoever came downstairs and I'm watching Kurt Cobain wearing a dress or, you know, kissing Chris Novoselic on the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's amazing how like, Things have changed. Obviously, homophobia is still rampant, but the fact that like more and more of these things are being normalized in in the public media and space is awesome. And it's curtain these bands like really pushing down that door. Yeah, that's a testament to all of the people who stood against it in a time where it was very much frowned upon. It was very much criticized and people were punished for these sorts of things. And, you know, going back like not too far before Kurt was doing this stuff, people were getting killed over it. So props to Kurt, props to our elders and our ancestors for paving the way and giving a lot of their lives to making the world a better place, even in small gestures like this. Absolutely. I don't know how to follow that up. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> Maybe we should just uh, get into, yeah, all right, here we go. This piece was produced by my co-host, Dusty Henry. Audio was mixed by Roddy Nickpour. Our podcast manager is Isabel Khalili. And Larry Mizell Jr. is our director of editorial. I am Martin Douglas. And I'm Dusty Henry. 
We'll see you next week on the Cobain 50 from listener-powered KEXP, where the music matters. Shout out to our employers for International Clash Day. And Merry Clash Day to everyone. (laughs) Even you, Tiny Tim. Yeah.